know, during, during times when uh, my dad, now my daddy, did, uh, I don't know how he got his education, but Papa had just a pretty handwriting. Is, is, is any, any, any Negro man or any white man on the, on the side? Hmm. And he, he knew it. He could tell you, but in different things, he sat out and told us the things he should have told us something was the Bible. He didn't make that much. But he told us back in his time that he, uh, he could have, uh, he said 25 cents out every dollar. And I tell you something, like you hear some people say, I got to go this week and make some money. I never heard my daddy make that in his life. He get him get this car and go on time, buy, come back with a box of groceries and all that all the time and, and, and buy us different stuff. He, he wouldn't, he didn't believe in no foolishness now. But for us, something to work with, we kept this good work with anybody else. Excuse me, let me interject this. When his father died, he left, I think, every one of his children, two bank books. Every one except, was it Bernice? Oh, uh -huh. every one of them. What? I don't know about ours. But anyway, how many children? Yeah, I, I, I already got, got it. All right. I already got it. Uh, now this is this is the man who did it on. He wasn't the bootlegger. Mm -hmm. He, I think he did make a little some, but I mean not a real outright bootlegger. But he did this by just hard work. Those shrimp boats and his little garden. He had a grocery store, and he just pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, so to speak. Yeah, and I, when he died, he was he was pretty well off. I mean. Yeah. Huh? I told. I said when he died, he was pretty well yeah. off. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I know I've been. I, I, I'll tell the ladies. I want you to record that, but don't. But, <laughs> one day, later you come. We come. We come into South. And my daddy, during that time, there was no one black guy in Southport had a, had. Much as two, one slip saw, my dad had two. Mm -hmm. And Pop was buying anywhere. I got proof, any people themselves can tell you they living now. My daddy buy anywhere from anywhere from two to three to four hundred gallons of gasoline. He had two gas, each boat was a gas burner. Uh -huh. And he'd buy anywhere from, from two to, I say, to 400 gallons of gas every week if we worked all the week long. If we worked from Monday through to Friday afternoon, that's get. And so uh, one evening we come in from, from uh, doing that, I'll tell you, doing that year, Papa went up with a new boat. And Mama, what Mama had done, Papa varnished all the boat up inside. It was new and made it had look nice. Nice, and Mama gave Papa some vanillin to put on the floor of the boat. Well, that was the wrong thing she could ever tell me. She didn't know. See, because I said it's the wrong thing. Because when the water wash up in the boat, the boat rock. The vanillin get the the water. The vanillin hold the water down before the floor, the floor would, would stay wet all the time. But during that time, you know. But nevertheless, we come in there that afternoon, and Papa gassed up, and so this. White guy said to Pop, he said, Jim, would you mind me going down inside looking at your, uh, your boat? Pop said, no, sir, go ahead. You're perfectly welcome. Go down in there. So he went down and he stayed down inside the boat for maybe, I say, I say maybe 10 or 15 minutes and looking all around. And everything was brand new. And so when he come out, he said, Jim, he said, I guess you heard the expression before. You don't have a you got a white man's rig. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. If he didn't say that, I hope I was the other man. I told Pop that they made I said, before I buy another drop of gas from him, I said, I'd, roll, I'd, I'd get me some old road and so forth and work. You don't have a rig, you got a white man's rig. Father, but during the time Papa had that new boat built, there was two white guys uh, in Shello that was having was three boats built on the same rail, but never the same rail, one of them had an old rail. But there was three boats built, and right two of them belonged to white people, and one belonged to Papa. And that you didn't, you, 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 you during them time, you didn't see no, you know, most everybody, back in my community, but everybody kept different things for, I, I can say this, he wasn't the only person that done it, he growing them boats, speed boats, and all that kind of stuff, but the work boats. Pop and Joe Franks is all, all those two people I seen had them big boats you sleep on and stay on and go popping up. Papa went for his Ferdinand one year, he and my brother. It slipped down in front of that boat. I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. just listening to a song called Too Tight This Rag of Mine by Blind Blake, who, as I mentioned in the previous episode, was a famous American blues and ragtime singer and guitarist who was popular in the first several decades of the 20th century. He was also known as a pioneer of the Piedmont blues, a form of traditional blues music in North Carolina and other parts of the South. This song is courtesy of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. At the very beginning of this episode, you heard from David Elliott Wade and Mamie McNeil Wade talking about how well David's father did for himself during the late 19th and early 20th century relative to conditions for African-Americans during that time. David was born in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1914. He and his wife were being interviewed in 1993 by Kara Miles. The interview is part of the Duke University John Hope Franklin Research Center Behind the Veil Project a selection of recorded oral history interviews chronicling African-American life during the age of legal segregation in the American South from the 1890s to the 1950s. 
The interview and all interviews from the Behind the Veil project that you hear on this season of Dreams of Black Wall Street are courtesy of the Rubenstein Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Duke University. In order to understand how a Wilmington or Durham, North Carolina could come to be, that is to say, in order to understand how relatively self-sustaining Black communities fueled largely by business and education and led primarily by Black middle class and elite community stakeholders could exist mere decades after slavery, it's important to understand some key points about North Carolina's history. So let's go through some of them. For one, prior to the Civil War, North Carolina was not like many of its Southern neighbors. During this period, Republicans were the party of Lincoln, while Democrats were loyal to Southern Confederate interests that largely centered around a society driven by slave labor. Naturally, most Southern states leaned Democratic. However, unlike most Southern states, the Republican Party had a strong presence in North Carolina. As author, attorney, and legal scholar Richard Pascal will soon explain, this is because prior to the Civil War, slavery grew far slower in North Carolina than in other Southern states. There were far less plantations that depended on slave labor as one might find elsewhere in the South. The plantations that did exist were largely concentrated in the Eastern part of the state, where most African-Americans, both enslaved and free, could be found. Similarly, white Democrats were largely found in the eastern part of the state where the plantations were located, while a sizable population of white Republicans and Unionists were concentrated in the mountainous regions of the state that did not rely on slave labor. The state was basically split between the two political parties, and this would play a major role in state politics. Secondly, North Carolina generated far less revenue than some of its southern neighbors, whose economies relied more heavily on slave labor, making North Carolina one of the poorest states in the country at the time. Less wealth in antebellum North Carolina meant a smaller white aristocracy, which in turn meant that other than race, there were less factors theoretically separating poor whites and poor free blacks. Thirdly, prior to the Civil War, North Carolina was home to one of the largest populations of free African-Americans in the country. At the start of the Civil War, more than about 30,000 free Blacks lived in North Carolina. That's more free African-Americans than could be found in most states in the North or South, representing about 10% of North Carolina's Black population, according to the Encyclopedia of North Carolina. A specific set of conditions made this possible. Runaways were frequent at the time. About two centuries ago, northeastern North Carolina was a major route along the Underground Railroad, as enslaved Blacks sought escape routes on the rivers and sounds and into the Great Dismal Swamp, where Maroons lived until the end of the Civil War. That's according to historian Wanda McLean, who discussed the legacy in the fight for freedom in Women of the Underground Railroad in northeastern North Carolina a documentary produced by the Museum of the Albemarle. Near the end of the 18th century, large numbers of free Blacks from Virginia also migrated to counties in northeastern North Carolina. They were later joined by free Blacks from elsewhere throughout the state, creating communities of free African Americans even before slavery was abolished. Additionally, Quakers circumvented strict manumission laws by giving slaves the, quote, full benefit of their labor, end quote, or assisting them with transportation to Haiti, Liberia, or free land in the North. But eventually, more and more slaves began buying their own freedom, 
Manumission saw an uptick towards the end of the 18th century until shortly before the Civil War. Prior to the end of slavery, many free Blacks were also self-employed and owned businesses. Free Blacks were largely found in the eastern part of the state, again, where most plantations were located, as well as areas near the Piedmont Plateau. Many free African Americans also resided in towns. Equally as important, the 1776 Constitution did not mention race as a condition for voting. As a result, free Blacks could and did vote in state elections and exercised some political influence in certain regions, again, before slavery was abolished. This displeased many white voters, particularly in the slave-holding eastern part of the state, who wanted to restrict voting to whites. They would succeed in doing so in 1835. In North Carolina, representation in the state Senate was based on property ownership rather than population, which gave slaveholding counties a disproportionate amount of control and power over state legislation. This was true when state legislators approved constitutional changes that year, which, among other things, eliminated the right to vote for free African-Americans in North Carolina. Here to explain this history in greater detail is attorney, author, and legal scholar Richard Pascal. Well, my name is Richard Pascal, and I'm an attorney in Raleigh, North Carolina, with a law firm named Therrington Smith. So let me take a step back and just explain very quickly North Carolina history. North Carolina was really quite unusual in the South. North Carolina was the last state to join the Confederacy, and there was a pretty knockdown, dragout fight in 18. 61 as to whether North Carolina would secede. Part of that was there was a large unionist contingent in the mountains. The mountains were not and still aren't big farming regions. They were small farm areas. So there was not a large slaveholding contingent in the mountains and largely those folks. And to this day, it continues to be a heavily Republican area. And North Carolina continued to have this kind of strong Republican presence in the state in the terms of the political party between what would be called the Black Belt, the counties where there had been large slaveholding populations where African-Americans made up large percentages of those counties in the mountain counties, which had very few African-Americans, but which were overwhelmingly unionist and Republican in their political leanings. North Carolina had that in spades compared to any other Southern state. So the mountains were farming communities, but they were small farms. They were subsistence farming. There weren't large, I mean, the mountains of North Carolina are not made, you know, geographically for large farming operations. It's only in the flatlands to the east of Raleigh where you had large plantations. And because of that, that's why the African-American population was so high in those counties and remains really so to this day. It was because of the history of plantations in that area. Now, the Piedmont section of North Carolina tended to be either, you know, small subsistence farming or somehow attached to the 
the towns and cities and were merchants and, and later textile factories and things like that, and later tobacco factories. But in terms of farming, mountains, small subsistence farms, very few slaves. In the East, large farms where there were plantations, large populations of African-Americans, both prior to the war and after the war and to this day. That was the linkage for the Republican Party and why it remained strong. You had the white unionists in in the mountains and the African-Americans in the East, and they didn't necessarily see eye to eye, but they were united under a big tent of Republicanism, and they tried to work together to the degree they could. Now, again, sometimes their interests did not align. It did not mean that the whites in the mountains were singing Kumbaya and were all in favor of racial equality, but they did try to work together because those were the historic political lines that had been drawn. The Unionists in the mountains stayed Republican, and the African-Americans in the East joined the party of Lincoln, the Republican Party, after emancipation. And so Republicans maintained a political power here in North Carolina that was really unusual. Even after Reconstruction, there were Republican governors. The dividing line in North Carolina was razor thin between the Democrats and the Republicans. North Carolina was really the poorest of the Southern states. Maybe not Mississippi and maybe not Florida. This is before you get Orlando and Disney World and the the explosion that happens in Florida in the 20th century. But North Carolina is really, you know, relatively speaking, not well off in terms of overall income and, and whatnot relative to, say, Virginia or South Carolina. There was really less slaveholding here in North Carolina compared to a lot of the other southern states, not just because of the mountains, but just because there weren't large plantation kind of operations, except in a little swath in the eastern part of the state. So that impacted North Carolina in certain ways. It did make it probably more hospitable for free blacks prior to the war to come to North Carolina because there wasn't the need to have a lot of slaves here compared to, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, going toward the um, Mississippi River and those areas. of these factors, including the fact that free Blacks were more common in North Carolina than most other Southern states years before slavery, parts of North Carolina, like Eastern areas where Blacks were more populous, reflected their desire for freedom. Over the years, African Americans have built homes and communities in a number of these areas in the spirit of self-determination. Take the community of James City, for example. By 1862, parts of North Carolina were under federal control. By the spring of that year, Union troops managed to occupy much of eastern North Carolina by the Cape Fear River during the Civil War, according to the North Carolina Museum of History. Still enslaved people heard they could find freedom and safety under the protection of Union forces. So Union-occupied territory became a refuge for Blacks, hoping to be free and enjoy other liberties. 
As more African-Americans sought refuge in federal-occupied North Carolina, Union troops began establishing settlement camps where people could temporarily be housed. The largest camp was the Trent River Settlement just outside of New Bern, North Carolina. By 1865, nearly 3,000 Blacks lived in the camp. Near the end of the war, it was renamed James City in honor of the Reverend Horace James, superintendent of the camp. After the war, James City grew to become a bustling Black community until about 1900 after residents lost a court battle for the land in 1893. It continues to exist today, however, as an unincorporated area of hundreds of residents, most of whom are African-American. At the end of the Civil War, Union troops also occupied the Tarboro area, also located in the eastern part of North Carolina. Some of the former slaves who'd fled nearby plantations for Union-occupied territory settled across the Tar River south of Tarboro in an encampment established by Union troops in 1865. They eventually established their own settlement called Freedom Hill, named for the site where the Emancipation Proclamation was read. Twenty years later, a Black carpenter named Turner Prince led the formal incorporation of the town as Princeville, which boasts as the oldest town incorporated by African Americans in the United States. Here again is Richard Pascal. about eastern North Carolina, you're talking about really about an hour east of Raleigh in places like Edgecombe County and north into Hertford County, things going up toward the Virginia line. Those places had even communities that had been formed by the freedmen after the Civil War where they were mayor, town commissioners, everything, where they set up their own individual communities so they could have some political power and say in their own communities. Right. Yeah. James City, Princeville, a lot of these areas. Princeville. Yes, exactly. Those types of towns are, and they still exist. They've had problems. Some of them have been, some when they were built, some of them were built uh, very close to uh, rivers and some of them have gotten hurt very bad hurricanes and flooding in the last really 10, 15 years, but they still are here. They started off a lot of them as encampments, actually, when enslaved folks at the time were crossing army lines to join the Union side or at least seek protection and have some sense of freedom on the Union side at the time. And then after the war, continued to sort of exist in their own area where they could have some sense of autonomy. That's the case for even in the cities. So Raleigh was nothing like it is today. But there was a large, and this was the case for a lot of Southern cities, there was a large area, which is not too far out of downtown, really, but was an African-American community. And it had both freed Blacks uh, who lived there prior to the Civil War and during the Civil War, as well as runaways. And they were places that they could hide and not run the risk of being caught as if they were just out in the populace in general. And these African-American communities, you know, they had their own schools often in a lot of cases and fire departments and things like that. And they just kind of got subsumed when, as the cities grew, cities do, they just keep 
annexing more and more space to broaden their tax base. But when these communities were taken in, they were taking in, you know, a separate segregated school system that had served that community. So you have cities like Princeville, which were virtually 100% African-American. And then you have pockets of residential segregation, we call it today, but were places where the Black community flourished even prior to the Civil War and after the Civil War. And they just, to some degree, that separateness and, and, and that history was kind of washed away when they got subsumed within the larger cities as the cities grew in it. That's one of the things that people have been uncovering the history of these communities and the degree to which they did have their own, you know, world because they were self-sufficient and had to rely on themselves for education in a way that would not have been the case for white citizens who live a mile down the road. Raleigh's another place that the spirit of self-determination many African-Americans had manifested in unusual ways in North Carolina. Following the Civil War, Raleigh grew to become a hub of opportunity for African-American advancement. This much is evidenced in various landmarks, institutions, and districts. Raleigh's home to Shaw University, for example, the oldest historically Black college in the Southeast, founded in 1865, as well as St. Augustine College, founded two years later in 1867. But Raleigh's tradition of Black education predates even these institutions. Have you heard of John Chavis? He was a free African-American preacher and teacher who fought in the Revolutionary War. In 1808, before the end of American slavery, he opened a school in Raleigh, teaching white children by day and Black children at night. Prominent white families are believed to have sent their children to study under Chavis, including Charles Manley, a North Carolina governor, as well as Archibald E. and John L. Henderson, sons of Chief Justice Henderson. Nevertheless, in the latter part of the 19th century, the presence of Shaw University and St. Augustine College prompted the development of the land surrounding the schools into Black neighborhoods. Other Black neighborhoods were erected on the outskirts of town, such as the Oberlin community, founded in the late 1860s as another freedman's village. By the turn of the 19th century, the educational and business opportunities found in Raleigh led to the creation of the Black middle class there. East Target Street, for example, became Raleigh's Black Main Street, where the city's greatest number of Black-owned businesses were found. But like other communities across North Carolina and the South, as hubs of Black progress and Black middle-class communities were formed, social and political barriers in the form of Jim Crow segregation and oppression emerged and grew stronger. In any case, by now, I hope it's clear not only how communities such as Wilmington and Durham came to be, but also how the Black communities in Wilmington and Durham were very much a reflection of the tenacity, hope, and ambition that had been present among African Americans in North Carolina, even before slavery was abolished. Some former slaves joined the U.S. Army and were even hired by the military to perform certain tasks during the Civil War. Many hoped to establish homes and communities of their own. 
Most, however, sought opportunities for a better life with their newfound freedom. After the Civil War, African Americans continued to live predominantly in rural areas in Central and Eastern North Carolina. Areas like Wilmington. Now, let's begin to really explore Wilmington. Here to help us do that is North Carolina Central State University law professor Irving Joyner. I'm a uh, professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and I teach uh, courses in uh, criminal law, criminal procedure, race in the law, and uh, civil rights. I uh, first got involved in Wilmington when I was doing organizing work for the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice. The uh, United Church of Christ had created an agency that was designed to help local communities deal with empowerment and more specifically to attack segregation and Jim Crow laws that were in place during that time. And as a result of that, in 1971, when African-American students staged a uh, walkout of the public school system in New Hanover County, our chief organizer in North Carolina, Ben Chavis, was sent into uh, Wilmington to help the local community address the issues that the students were encountering. And then during that effort, which resulted in a lot of bloodshed, a lot of property uh, destroyed in the city, people would come to us to talk about what had happened in Wilmington in 1898. And at the time, very few people knew about it. And those people in Wilmington who had a more specific knowledge about it didn't talk about it because they were fearful that that it would happen again in Wilmington. So as a result of these kind of Whispered campaign, I uh, received a book by uh, uh, Leon Prather, which talked about the 1898 Wilmington race riot. And that was my first knowledge of what had occurred there. So I was then engaged and involved with the Wilmington 10 case for probably the next, well, next 40 years, really, uh, as things worked out. And along the way, one of the members of the Wilmington 10 was Joe Wright. And by 2000, his brother was elected as the first African-American member of the General Assembly from Wilmington uh, since Reconstruction. And another was elected as a state senator from that district. And their first order of business when they went to the General Assembly was to form a commission to look into the 1898 Wilmington uh, race riots and to prepare a detailed history 
of what had occurred, what caused the uh, rebellion, what happened during it, and then what was its impact. And they then asked me if I would serve as the co-chair. Joe Wright was the uh, state legislator, and he served as the chair of the commission. And because of my ongoing commitment and activity and history with Wilmington and the fact that I was on the uh, faculty at uh, North Carolina Central Law School, he then asked me if I would assist them with the commission. And then the uh, General Assembly appointed us as members of that commission with a charge to look into the 1898 race riot but did not provide any funds for us to do the work that we were asked to do. So Uh, what has your work been like, and how did you do it without the funds? Well, through the efforts of those uh, legislators, they were able to get the North Carolina Cultural Affairs Agency to sign on and partner with the project. And so they then provided staff to do the work. Members of the commission basically funded or footed their own expenses in working with the commission, but the chief part of it had to do with the uh, cultural affairs and staff people that they provided to staff the uh, operation and to manage the uh, massive research effort that occurred. And they assigned uh, Larray Umfleet as their chief point person in doing research and preparing, actually uh, drafting the report that the commission would eventually issue. This process took about five years to complete, but we were dedicated to the notion that we were going to do this because it was very important for the history of North Carolina and that people understood what had occurred why it had occurred, and this impact on politics in North Carolina. So can you just kind of give us a little backstory on that history? Right. Well, there were two sets of African descendants in in Wilmington. There were those who were enslaved, which was the uh, majority of uh, Africans in the uh, city and in the state. But there was a large population of free Africans in uh, Wilmington and in North Carolina, particularly in the eastern part of uh, North Carolina. At the time, roughly 15 to 20 percent of the African population uh, in the state was free, and North Carolina had the uh, second largest populations of free Africans in the country prior to the Civil War. So you had a large collection of Africans who were free, who were never uh, enslaved, who owned businesses, operated businesses, owned property. And really up until 1835 in North Carolina, those free uh, Africans could vote and participate in the political franchise. Some of the uh, leading educators in North Carolina doing slavery were African-American. John Chavis, who was Ben Chavis's great-grandfather, was the leading educator in the state of North Carolina who created educational academies all over the triangle part of the state where he uh, educated the white children 
of governors and senators and members of the House of Representatives and congressional representatives, but he was the leader, educational leader, doing slavery for the uh, state of North Carolina. So North Carolina has had a history of a large number of free Africans in the state. Among the enslaved population, even those had a lot of freedom on the riverbanks at the ocean, uh, the Atlantic uh, Ocean, where you had large shipping industry that was open and employed or allowed these free Africans to work. And so they developed significant skills in the uh, economic and business arena, such that even though many were enslaved, they acted as if they were not. So it was a different point of departure for uh, those uh, Africans, both enslaved and free, in the state where they commingle freely with whites in that area. Added to that were the children of uh, the plantation owners who were of African origin because mixed blood was uh, a big part of the African, uh, the slave experience there in North Carolina. And there were large numbers of uh, mulattoes who were born and grew up in that area. So in that sense, it was a different kind of community. It was not what you typically hear about when you talk about enslaved people in the uh, in the South. Mr. Chavis, the educator that you talk about, he even educated some of North Carolina's prominent elected officials. Yes, he did. He did. He was from Granville County, Oxford, North Carolina. He was a minister with the Episcopal uh, Church who was able to travel about because he was uh, free. He was highly uh, respected, even by some of the uh, whites who were a part of the Democratic Party seeking to uh, maintain uh, slavery in the state. In Raleigh, there's a section named after him called Chavis Heights as as an honor of the uh, work that uh, he did during slavery. And there's a Chavis Height Community Center that continues to honor the uh, contributions that he made to the state, even though he was there doing the uh, slavery period. Wilmington, as you mentioned, was a different sort of community when it comes to the dynamics of Blacks and whites during slavery, which is why it's even kind of more confounding given the insurrection, because it seems like there's a long history of Black enterprise, you know, industrious Black communities in Wilmington. And so we know that there also had been a long history of racial tensions there. When the Union troops came, they treated the Blacks there only slightly better than those who'd been freed, their former slave masters, and often sided with the Confederate soldiers and white supremacist sympathizers in the white population. So I just wondered if you could explain briefly what your commission found in terms of the racial dynamics in Wilmington, even in spite of the exceptional autonomy that a lot of Black people seem to have in Wilmington for the time? Well, prior to the Civil War, there was an acceptance of the existence of these free Africans in the area. And a part of the uh, ruling class that had mulatto children, they then favored those children. So it was not a hostile relationship that existed. 
In addition to that, you had a lot of enslaved people seeking to run away, uh, runaway uh, slaves going through Wilmington because the port city was a port city of Wilmington and the port city of Newburgh were targets because they could get to uh, shipping routes that would take them north. Uh, So Wilmington was not as oppressive as other parts of the uh, state during the enslavement period. So it was a different relationship. Even after 1868, as uh, African-Americans became more politically active, and that community was always very politically active, roughly 90% of the community registered, 90 to 95% of them voted in every election that occurred. There was uh, organized efforts as a part of the fusionist uh, movement to uh, ensure that the rights of these newly freed uh, citizens uh, were uh, protected. So they had a strong community base and they were very politically active and they had a strong economic base. The fact that the uh, uh, slave owners and Confederates uh, had lost their property, they were intent on uh, restoring their ownership of that property and returning to their position of dominance uh, within the state. That created the animosity that existed between uh, the whites and African uh, Americans during that time. Is it safe to say that that animosity increased after the Civil War? So, for example, before the Civil War, you said there was an acceptance of free Blacks But once the slave owners lost their property and their livelihood, it seems that is when the animosity worsened. Right. It it, it escalated. You have to remember in 1868, you have the founding of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, So along with the founding of the Ku Klux Klan came the uh, development of terroristic activities designed to keep these uh, free Africans, uh, the newly new citizens in their place. Uh, So that was the beginning of the kind of a militaristic effort that was designed to bring them back to the position that they should have been in in the first place by those uh, white supremacists and those members of the uh, Confederacy that wanted to return to power. Interesting. You mentioned the founding of the Ku Klux Klan in 1868, because that's when we also see the sort of universal male suffrage movement, you know, kind of. Uh, sweep over the state. So I'm, I wonder if there was some correlation between the two there. I'm not oh, sure. Oh, yes. Yes. There, one of the things that happened is that Congress prohibited those former Confederate leaders and plantation owners from participating in politics in North Carolina as a condition for North Carolina being returned to the United States. They had created a separate country And a condition of their uh, returning was that those people who were a part of the Confederacy could not participate in politics. So that opened the door for wider participation, not only by uh, African-Americans, but also by whites, poor whites, who had not been allowed to participate previously in the political affairs of the uh, state. So you have this disgruntled crowd that's there that now wants a return to the power and glory which they had previously uh, enjoyed. Kind of like a volcano waiting to erupt. 
I wonder, notwithstanding the racial tensions that you mentioned, Wilmington still became, at the time, at least before the insurrection, it was a hub of Black entrepreneurship, enterprise. Can you just kind of explain how, you know, those opportunities became available to Black people in Wilmington that maybe were not available to Black people elsewhere in the state and even throughout the South? The coast, being in the uh, port city, where commerce uh, was the key to the economic life of the community, the uh, connection with foreigners coming in and out, the need for uh, labor. The Wilmington community was the place to be. It was the most prosperous city uh, in North Carolina, and it drew a lot of free uh, Africans into that area where they were able to find jobs, they were able to start uh, businesses, they were able to profit, they were able to build homes, they were able to own all kinds of property interests, and they were able to uh, engage in commerce on a wide-scale basis, not only with people right there in the Wilmington community, but with people from the other parts of the state. So it was a very economically secure area it was a uh, majority African-American up until uh, 1900. Uh, so going into 1898, Wilmington was basically 55% uh, African-American in terms of, of the population. And it wasn't until after that that there was a decrease in the African-American population in that city. But it was a best described as a black town prior to that that was very prosperous and obviously was the jewel in the uh, eyesight of the Confederates that they wanted to make an example out of it that would then be translated to uh, other parts of the state as it sought to uh, uh, advance its notion of the wonders of uh, white superiority. So that's fascinating. I wonder, what were a lot of the businesses that led to a lot of the wealth generating among Black families there? In addition to working on the uh, the docks, and they were unionized as well, which helped their, their power to grow. But craftsmen, all of the craftsmen, shoe horse, barbers, grocery store owners, people who were engaged in all kinds of, I guess, ventures that provided service, uh, the service economy that was there still uh, was able to profit from their interactions with whites. There was the newspaper uh, business. There was real estate. Many of the African-Americans who were there owned property, sold, bought property, farming. So a wide range of economic activity that they were engaged in that provided a a solid economic foundation upon which they could build an education, uh, school, from grade schools uh, all the way up. They were engaged in effort to uh, educate that uh, population, which was one of the key demands that the African-American community established going into the uh, drafting of the 1868 uh, North Carolina Constitution. It always fascinates me, especially when I think about how far removed they were from slavery, which wasn't very far at all, and how they were able to 
acclimate into you know a society that was still very much dependent on cheap black labor at the time and it seems like wilmington was definitely an example of that well all of that history was purposely suppressed by white supremacy they did not want people to know about what these african americans were able to accomplish coming out of slavery and why they were able to have the kinds of successes that they had. So even uh, people in Wilmington after 1910 and leading on up didn't know uh, what had happened in 1898. And those few who did know wouldn't tell because they were afraid because of the uh, continuing brutality that was visited upon African-American communities under Jim Crow, they were completely intimidated. We'll explore the events that led up to the 1898 Wilmington insurrection and coup d'etat, along with the insurrection and coup itself. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. One more thing for my history super fans, I'd like to suggest another podcast. It's called The Bohemian Podcast, and it explores the telling of ancient legends and fairy tales connected to the people of Czechia formerly known as Bohemia, a landlocked country in Central Europe. Grab your gal, fall in line, while I play this rag of mine, too tight, this rag of mine. Can't just want you.